Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. During World War II, the Supreme Court heard some significant cases that impacted our civil rights and civil liberties. The justices, whose individual relationships were fractious, were actively involved in supporting the war effort and displayed loyalty to President Roosevelt in ways that would draw criticism today. Cliff Sloan, who's argued seven cases before the Supreme Court and now teaches at Georgetown Law Center, captures this important period in the court and country's history in his new book, The Court at War. Cliff Sloan is our guest this week. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Cliff Sloan, your second book is out about the Supreme Court, but a very different era from the first one. Tell me about The Court at War. Well, the court at war is about the Supreme Court during World War II, and it's a very, very uh, interesting and momentous time for the court, and it's really the Roosevelt Court. Um, let me back up and tell you how I got interested in this subject. I was working as um, special envoy for Guantanamo closure in 2013 and 2014, and in doing that, I was reading the Supreme Court decisions on uh, military detention, including the notorious and shameful Korematsu case. And I noticed that the first of the shameful anti-Japanese decisions, Hirabayashi, which was about a, t a curfew targeted at Japanese American citizens, was decided um, exactly one week from, uh, exactly one week before one of the greatest civil liberties decisions in the court's history, West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, where the Supreme Court, in a famous eloquent opinion by Justice Robert Jackson, struck down a compulsory flag salute in West Virginia public schools that Jehovah's Witnesses had objected to. And I noticed that within seven days, the Supreme Court had issued one of the worst civil liberties decisions in its history and one of the greatest civil liberties decisions in its history. Um, and so that um, puzzled me and interested me. And so I became very interested in reading about the Supreme Court during World War II. And I discovered that there's actually not very much written on that as a subject. There's a tremendous amount written about FDR's battles with the Supreme Court in the 1930s, his failed effort to pack the court, the, uh, by enlarging it, the famous switch in time that saved nine, where one justice changed his vote to allow the upholding of New Deal programs. And then there's a lot written on the Warren Court beginning in the 1950s, but there's very, very little written on the Supreme Court during World War II as a subject. And it turns out to be quite a story um, with many very important lessons for today and many very, very interesting personalities in terms of the justices, the lawyers that appeared before them, uh, the litigants. But the single overriding fact is that the war dominated everything for the justices, even in cases that didn't directly relate to the war itself. Not just for the justices, but the country. For the country, absolutely, and the justices are part of the country. And uh, you know, in understanding the Supreme Court, it's one thing that I, I think is very important is to realize that the justices are part of the times. Um, they're part of what's going on in their country. They're part of what's going on in Washington D.C. Now, I don't mean that in a you know sort of one-dimensional way that it's just automatically determined by what's happening. 
that would be artificial. But it's just as artificial to think of them as somehow uh, closed off. You know, we read these decisions in the four corners, um, but it's very important to kind of understand what's happening um, at the time um, and never more so than during World War II. So we're all creatures of our times is what you're saying. We are absolutely creatures of our times. You know, um, uh, I start the book with one anecdote that I think is very telling of this point. Um, it was actually told to me by a gentleman who's about to turn 100 years old. And on December 8th, 1941, the day after the Pearl Harbor attack, he was working as an 18-year-old aide in the Supreme Court Library. And he was doing what an aide does, dropping off books, picking up books. And all of a sudden, he saw coming through the front door um, armed soldiers, U.S. soldiers, with their weapons drawn. And they took up positions around the windows, on the roof of the court. And the reason was that FDR was going to speak to Congress at noon that day in his famous speech where he said December 7th, 1941 is a date which will live in infamy. And so the military, this was the day after this devastating surprise attack, the military expanded the security perimeter so that it was guarding the Supreme Court, which is right across the street from the Capitol where FDR was going to be speaking. But it is so symbolic of the war literally invading the quiet precincts of the Supreme Court with the um, soldiers all stationed around. And I'll tell you one other anecdote that I think illustrates the same point, which is a few weeks later, on December 26, 1941, Winston Churchill was addressing a joint session of Congress. He had come to D.C. in a surprise visit, um, the two allies now at war together. And so he addresses this joint session of Congress, and all the Supreme Court justices are in the front row. They had actually adjourned court early so they could be there. And Churchill gives this rousing Churchillian speech, and at the end he pauses and looks out at the crowd. And in the front row, Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone lifts his uh, uh, fingers in the trademark V for victory sign in answer to Churchill doing the same thing. And again, it was very clearly uh, a message. The court was in the war. So how did it turn out that when the war started, FDR had appointed seven of the nine justices, but only a little bit earlier, he had been battling the court so much that he wanted to expand it. What happened to turn it so much? Yeah, and that's one of the fascinating things about this period, which I think is um, not really very well understood. And that's why um, th this is really the time of the pure Roosevelt court. So, as you say, in 1937, throughout the 1930s, FDR is battling the Supreme Court. He has his failed court packing plan in 1937, but there is this switch in time that saved nine by Justice Owen Roberts, who had been appointed by Herbert Hoover, the man FDR had defeated. Um, but very soon after that, in the next few years, there's a wave of retirements and a couple of deaths. Now, one interesting thing, you know, it's very well known that FDR's court packing plan failed, the plan to enlarge the court. but there was a little-noticed companion piece of legislation which um, considerably improved the justices' retirement benefits if they were 70 years uh, old 
or older and if they had served for more than 10 years. And remember, FDR's core packing plan was to appoint a new justice for every justice over 70. Um, and whether it's cause, or effect, it cause and effect or not, the fact is that pretty soon after, FD, after Congress passed that uh, law, considerably enhancing the retirement benefits, a number of the justices retired in the next few years. Now, they also may have been reacting to the changed dynamic with Owen Roberts now being the switch in time. Um, but as a result, it's remarkable. By the summer of 1941, as you say, FDR had appointed seven of the nine justices, and he had elevated an eighth, Harlan Fisk Stone, who had initially been appointed by Calvin Coolidge, in 1925, he had elevated Stone to be Chief Justice. So eight of the nine justices on the court owed their positions to FDR. It was by far the biggest impact on the court of any president since George Washington. Does that package of 70 still exist for justices? Um, yes, it does. It does, actually. That I mean, that has kind of stayed in effect. I think it's been tweaked some uh, over time, um, but that um, but that retirement uh, package does still exist, yes. So before we dig in further to your book, a little bit about you. Um, uh, for folks who watched our Landmark Cases <clears throat> series, you were here to talk about Marbury versus Madison, which was your first book subject. Uh, you're a member of the Supreme Court Bar? Yes. Uh, how many cases have you argued before the court? Seven. And what are you doing full-time now? So now I'm teaching full-time at uh, Georgetown Law School. I teach constitutional law and criminal justice. We were talking before we started taping about how uh, you incorporate the current issues of the day into what you're teaching at the court uh, last year, the Dobbs decision, for example. So this summer has been a summer with a great number of stories about justices and their ethics reporting, and even whether or not Congress has any say over how the court is organized. First of all, can you comment about what your observations are about that, and how are you going to teach that this year? Um, well, it's, it's a very interesting and very um, important question, and actually there's a lot of relevance in the book on that, and which, I, which I'll um, explain, um, and which I think is very important to today's debate. Um, so, um, I think we absolutely need a binding code of ethics for Supreme Court justices with um, specificity. Um, people point out certain kinds of you know, logistical problems or challenges, including with enforcement. Um, and, and there are some challenges. But whatever the problems with having a binding code of ethics, it is far worse not having one in terms of the integrity of the court, the character of the court, the public confidence in the court. So I think it is extremely um, important that we have that. And I also think, you know, we talk about a, a code of ethics. I also think it is very important when we think about the Supreme Court that beyond a code of ethics, we have a very strong sense of ethical norms um, and that, that it is enforced through public opinion um, and public reaction in addition to the binding ethics. And um, the current controversies um, primarily have involved uh, financial issues and they've involved uh, justices who are appointed by Republican presidents. And it's one of the reasons I think what happened with the Supreme Court justices in World War II is so important for today's conversation because these justices, we're talking about the number of justices that FDR appointed, and it wasn't just the number. They were extremely close to him. They revered him. 
And uh, many of them were very involved in political and policymaking activities with him. Um, and I'm somebody who greatly admires FDR and his presidency. But I think, um, and, and, and I, I greatly admire and respect the justices uh, who served on this uh, court. It was a tremendously interesting group of uh, justices. Um, but I think that their political and policy making activities were wrong and inappropriate for Supreme Court justices. I mean, I can give you some examples of them. But to your question, Susan, one of the points that I think it highlights, which is very important, is this is not a partisan issue, and it should not be a partisan issue. I think it's very unfortunate that it has, um, to some extent, taken on the cast of a partisan issue. Um, we have had issues with uh, justices appointed by Democratic presidents, including those in the, in, during World War II, the FDR appointees, and we've had issues with justices appointed um, by Republican presidents. And uh, this should be a bipartisan issue. It should be a nonpartisan issue that we should have very strong ethical requirements um, for the justices and we should have very strong ethical norms. And one other point you were saying, does a think in thinking about this and the sort of separation of powers um, and uh, uh, is there a problem? And some opponents of ethics codes say, oh, well, Congress has no business, you know, telling the Supreme Court how to, um, how to run it. Um, I don't think there's merit to that argument at all. Uh, the Constitution gives the Congress a great deal of authority um, over the Supreme Court, um, including the number of justices, including the calendar of the uh, Supreme Court, including the kinds of cases it can hear, except for a very, very um, small group that the Constitution says is in the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Um, now, th there's a limit on it. Um, you know, Congress can't um, direct the court, you know, in the case of Smith versus Jones, you know, fine for Smith. I mean, there, there's a limit on what Congress can do in terms of um, governing the Supreme Court affairs. Um, but uh, under, under the Constitution, under our system of checks and balances, uh, Congress has a great deal of authority w with regard to um, how the Supreme Court operates, how the justices operate. The justices, of course, have to file tax returns. In my view, um, and nobody says, well, they should be immune from that because Congress can't speak to the justices. In my view, the code of ethics falls in a similar category. Yes, you can say it's a little different because it's focusing directly on the Supreme Court as opposed to the same obligations as every citizen. Um, but I do think the Cong that Congress has uh, a lot of authority with respect to this type of issue. One more, and it's the elephant in the room. Uh, you teach criminal justice and perhaps the most important criminal justice cases in front of the country with the Trump trials coming up in the federal courts. I'm wondering, uh, first of all, how you might be teaching them as they're happening in real time overall. and. Uh, uh, one issue that's of importance to us and our audience is whether or not there ought to be cameras or audio of some sort in those court uh, courtrooms when these trials are underway. Do you have an opinion on on that? Um, yeah, I'll start with that on the uh, cameras. Um, I'm all for cameras in the courtroom, including in the Supreme Court. And um, you know, people get into all sorts of. Um, debates about would it undermine the quality and would it be a distraction and that kind of thing. 
And first, I, I, I don't think that it would be. But secondly, I don't think that's the right question. Under our system uh, of government, um, it, it, we should have a view of openness and transparency, and whether it's the Supreme Court or whether it's a local federal court, the idea that only a small group of people, maybe people uh, who uh, spend the night outside the court to get in or are paid line sitters, that to have uh, that such limited access to such um, uh, events of such crucial national importance, um, I think is simply you know misguided and inconsistent with our uh, with our system of government. I'm very skeptical of um, situations that are nominally open to the public, but in reality are open only to a very very limited uh, group of people. So. Um, yes, so I'm all for cameras in the courtroom. In the interest of transparency, C-SPAN has been pretty vocal over the years on that issue as well, which we, of course, support for. Right, and by the, the way, public. I should say in the interest of transparency, at one point in my career, I did work at the Washington Post Company, and I was uh, a lawyer for them and, and a general counsel of their online subsidiary, so people should take that into account as You've well. You've written a few opinion pieces about the Trump litigation. Do you have anything to say about where it stands right now and the process is what's unfolding? Well, I, um, I think these are very, very uh, important cases uh, in terms of the charges. I think that these, these are very, very grave charges. Um, uh, the, the, the charge really of you know complete undermining and overthrowing our democracy and obviously it's an a kind of unprecedented uh, time in our country um, I get uh, bothered in s some of these pending criminal cases and there are civil cases um, by the claim that some make that well this is all um, all of the uh, activities that the president and the people around him um, are charged with, those were all just um, sort of normal activities of a president or within the scope of official responsibility and therefore cannot be challenged. And I feel very, very strongly uh, to the contrary on that. And I think, you know, in terms of the charges that have been brought to, with the January 6th um, trial, I think that uh, the idea that those kinds of activities should be viewed as within the official duties of the president are very, very dangerous and alarming notion. In terms of the classified documents um, case, you know, I spent I've spent time in different situations where in government where I've dealt with classified information a lot. I mentioned I was special envoy for Guantanamo closure, and I and everybody in my office. Um, and everybody in the State Department and you know other places I've worked in the White House, you had to be so careful about classified documents. Um, when I was Special Envoy, my desk had to be completely clean you know, when I left at night and there would be people who would come around and check. And so to anybody who's worked in that classified document world, the kind of cavalier um, approach to classified documents um, that has, has come up in the course of that proceeding is truly shocking. Well, let's return to the 1940s FDR and World War II and the court 
that really supported many of his uh, efforts during that time. So uh, you could spend, uh, we could probably spend an hour on each one of the <laughs> characters that served in that court because they were really larger than life, many of them. But give us a couple more uh, sentences on Harlan Stone because he presided over a court that you called fractious, bitter, full of internal rivalries. How much of that was his doing? Well, it, um it was his doing in the sense that he was the Chief Justice and he was not at all able to um, kind of uh, manage it, control it, mitigate it. Um, I mean, it would have been a formidable challenge for any Chief Justice, but he seemed particularly ill-suited for it. So let me back up a little bit on Harlan Fisk Stone. Um, he was appointed to the Supreme Court by Calvin Coolidge in 1925. Coolidge had been an Amherst College buddy of his. Um, he had been both a Columbia Law professor and dean and a Wall Street lawyer, and he had been brought in as Attorney General to clean up the department after the Teapot Dome scandals of the Harding administration. And he, when he got to the court, people thought that he was going to be um, very pro-business given his background. And in fact, the only sort of opposition to him uh, came from that. But he actually turned out to be one of the few who, were, uh, who was voting to uphold social and economic legislation when a sort of ultra-conservative court was striking it down right and left. And he joined with people like Justice Brandeis and Justice Car Cardozo, and Justice Holmes, um, in seeking to uphold the, uh, the legislation. So he was kind of a surprise. Um, but FDR made him Chief Justice in the summer of 1941. And the main reason that FDR did, and this is actually un undisputed, and you see this in the contemporary documents, is that in 1941, FDR was single-mindedly focused on preparing for war, which he thought was inevitable. And he wanted it to be as bipartisan as possible. And in fact, the previous summer in 1940, he had appointed two very prominent uh, Republicans to be Secretary of War and Secretary of the Navy. He was trying to have a bipartisan government. And so he loved the idea of having um, a Republican as Chief Justice, elevating um, a Republican as a sign of national unity. And so that actually was the, the main reason um, that Stone became Chief Justice. But you did have all of these uh, very, very strong personalities, all of whom thought they should be leading the court and who were you know, disagreeing with each other, both on substantive grounds and there were personal issues. And, and uh, Harlan Fisk Stone, unfortunately, just turned out to be a very, very weak Chief Justice. Uh, we, I can't do all of the Associate Justices, so but I want to do a couple of them. But there was a statistic that was surprising to me in your book. Only two justices in this court had any judicial experience before joining the court. Right. It is such a contrast to today's court, and it's so um, I interesting. And, and those two, um, Hugo Black and Frank Murphy, you know, Hugo Black was briefly uh, a judge in the police court in Birmingham, and Frank mm -hmm. Murphy had been a local judge in Detroit before becoming mayor of Detroit and governor of Michigan. Um, uh, and then um, the, the only justice who had any federal judicial experience was 
Wiley Rutledge, who was the last justice who came in in 1943. But the, um, rather than judicial experience, these justices all had uh, very distinguished and accomplished public lives. They were former senators. You had a former governor. You had a former uh, chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. You had former attorneys general of the United States. You had a former leading public intellectual. They all had, had these very large public lives. And in contrast, the current Supreme Court, all except one justice, Justice Elena Kagan, had previously served as federal appellate judges. So it's really a very dramatic contrast. And with Supreme Court appointments, um, people debate the fact that it used to be that justices had a much broader uh, public experience. And some, some people think that we should have, that we should go back to justices having that kind of experience because it gives them a better overall sense of the issues and their impact. Um, there are other people who say, no, it's, it's best to have people who are coming up through the uh, judiciary or through the federal judiciary because their role is judges and the background in politics or government um, actually maybe isn't a good thing. So there's a debate about that, but it is very, very striking, the contrast of that court to the current court. I'll just ask you to name some others that were specifically involved in cases uh, as we go along here, rather sure. than talking about individual biographies at this point. Uh, another statistic, the average age of this court went from 72 years old in the prior court down to 56. So uh, younger and more contemporary attitudes also came to the court during that time and uh, Senate approval process, nothing like what we see today. No, absolutely not. They just sort of um, zipped through. Um, there were, and you know, the idea of um, appearing as a, as a witness in a hearing on um, kind of unrestricted topics. Uh, Felix Frankfurter was the first justice that did that. There had been, you know, one example before where somebody appeared before the Judiciary Committee to answer opinions on the specific topic, uh, but it was nothing like today. And in fact, one of the things that became a controversy with FDR's first appointee, Hugo Black, um, who had been a senator from Alabama, is that it came out after his confirmation that he had been in the Ku in the in the Ku Klux Klan in the KKK. Um, and this was a big controversy right after his confirmation. But one of the things that I found very interesting is there were rumors and allegations of this before he, it, his nomination was voted on in the Senate. And they talked a bit about it on the floor of the Senate. And yet there was nothing like what we would have today, which was a kind of serious inquiry into it, um, hearings about it, questions to the nominee where he had to address it. Um, they just kind of brushed it aside and confirmed him. And then there was a, a Pittsburgh newspaper did a, a Pulitzer Prize winning series detailing his KKK activities and that led to the controversy. Um, but it was, a, it was a completely different time in terms of the way confirmations unfolded. One other character who appears regularly in your story is the Attorney General, Francis Biddle. How did he approach his job philosophically? Did he see himself as the neutral arbiter of justice for the country or someone beholden to the president? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, 
I think he would have said he saw himself as a neutral um, arbiter. And he was actually, you know, he had been, he was from a very prominent Philadelphia family. And was he's, that the Bailey Banks and Biddle family, the, 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 the jeweler family that he was from? Um, I, I believe so. I'm not 100 mm -hmm. percent positive, but, but he had had um, ancestors who had been very involved in the, in, in the federal government going back to the founding and, you know, a very, very um, prominent family. And he thought of himself as somebody who cared a great deal about civil liberties and that kind of thing. But I think that he, in on some very crucial matters, um, he actually ended up being somebody who was unduly loyal to the to the president. Um, and uh, you know, it may be that we're going to get into the Japanese internment and incarceration. But that's an example. He was opposed to it. Um, and I internally, he and others in the Justice Department um, opposed it, but he was unwilling to tell the president that, in his view, it was unconstitutional and that it would raise constitutional problems. And he viewed it, in the end, as a policy matter and said, well, since the War Department wants to do it and the president wants to do it, you know, we'll just try to help them implement it. And I think that was a tragic and historic failure on his part. So it's interesting. It shows the difference between one's conception of oneself and what the record of one's actions sometimes reveal. So you referenced earlier how the, the war consumed the court, but some of the ways that justices got involved in the war effort really seem unthinkable to contemporary Americans. Give me a couple of the stories of what uh, some of the ways they supported the war. Well, um, so first of all, in 1941, when there was a fierce debate in the country before Pearl Harbor about how active the U.S. should be in supporting England um, and preparing for war, and there was strong isolationist sentiment, many of the justices took to the hustings and gave speeches strongly supporting FDR. Um, and so this was a major policy issue. It was probably the biggest policy issue in the country at the time. And there were clear political lines on it. And many of the justices were going around the country giving those, these speeches, and they were closely coordinating with the White House in some instances. Frank Murphy was the only um, Catholic on the court, and he, he spoke before the Knights of Columbus, um, urging, urging strong support. And, uh, you know, there had been some concern by some in the U.S. about supporting Russia, which was now at war with Germany because they were against religion. And Frank Murphy said, we should put aside that concern and strongly support them. Um, and FDR let it be known to Murphy that he was, quote, tickled to death by Murphy's speech. Um, and so there was just a, a whole series of exhortations um, by the justices very explicitly saying, we need to support the president and we need to support his view on this. And even when it wasn't explicitly coordinated with the White House, everybody knew this was the highest priority for FDR. And through 1941, there is um, a lot of discussion among some of the justices about possibly joining the Roosevelt administration and joining him um, in sort of senior uh, defense capabilities, Justice William O. Douglas, for example. But the single most striking example of this is that uh, Justice James Burns, Jimmy Burns, who had been a senator from South Carolina, he was appointed in the, to the Supreme Court in the summer of 1941. 
And while he was on the Supreme Court, after Pearl Harbor, he became very active with FDR and the White House on war-related legislation. He knew the Senate intimately. He, he was a sort of parliamentary master. And shortly after FDR, uh, shortly after Pearl Harbor, FDR made it clear to those in his administration that any war-related legislation has to go mm -hmm. through Jimmy Burns, has to be approved by him. And Burns was frequently working out of the White House during this period, um, and he was actually an intermediary, a key intermediary, between the White House and Congress on this major war-related legislation, um, which of course could come before the Supreme Court, all while he was a sitting justice. Now, in the fall of 1942, so only 14 months after he went on the Supreme Court, FDR said to Burns, why don't you come to the White House full time? And um, you'll be the assistant president in charge of the domestic war effort. I'm gonna focus on the war. You be assistant uh, president and you know, oversee the economy. And so at that point, Burns actually left the White House, I'm sorry, left the Supreme Court and went to the White House full time. But for the 14 months before that, and particularly after Pearl Harbor, he was literally working out of the White House on legislation with Congress and basically in charge of the legislation for the White House. I'm going to pause for a second and tell our audience we're a little more than halfway through our conversation with Cliff Sloan. His new book is The Court at War, FDR, His Justices and the World They Made. Uh, you, uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about a very interesting case uh, in 40, summer of 42 on the German saboteurs and how involved Franklin Roosevelt was in this particular case. What's, give me the highlights of it. Yes, absolutely. So um, in uh, early summer 1942, um, there were two teams of Nazi saboteurs that were captured, um, two groups of four. One landed in, on Long Island and one landed in Florida. Um, and actually one of the saboteurs, although this wasn't known at the time, this didn't come out publicly until much later, but one of the saboteurs actually went to the government and uh, told them um, everything. He had grievances against Nazi Germany, and actually when he was first trying to get through to the government, they thought it was a crank call and didn't pay any attention to it. And he finally came to Washington and finally got through to somebody um, at the FBI. But so, and, and then there was a very dramatic announcement by J. Edgar Hoover that they had captured these saboteurs who had come to the U.S. They were going to blow up buildings and you know, um, stores and that kind of thing. And so um, Francis Biddle, the Attorney General we were talking about, reports to FDR about it. And FDR immediately becomes very involved in what to do with these saboteurs. He was a history buff. He starts talking about um, other traitors uh, going back to the Revolutionary War who were uh, caught and promptly um, uh, executed by hanging. And uh, so FDR, in consultation with others, but very strongly dis uh, supports creating an extraordinary special military commission to try them. And FDR makes very clear he wants them promptly tried, convicted, and executed. Um, and uh, so FDR issues two executive orders on this. Um, and this is on a very, very quick uh, timeline. And FDR is talking to people about it, about how 
he thinks it'll be very important to have the example of quickly executing um, these people. And uh, the saboteurs, there was a lawyer, a military colonel who was appointed to represent them. And he had some very, very substantial objections to this extraordinary military commission. The regular courts were open. Um, they could have uh, brought charges in the regular courts. He was relying on some uh, uh, Civil War era precedents. Um, and so in the summer of 1942, he approaches the Supreme Court to take the case. The Roosevelt administration agrees because they want everything to move promptly. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, there's a private conversation that Biddle has with FDR, where FDR tells Biddle, the attorney general, that if the Supreme Court rules against him, he's not, he's not going to follow the decision. He's not going to turn the prisoners over. He's not going to let it affect what they do. And uh, so, the, uh, the, so the justices then have an extraordinary summer session. You know, they usually um, recess for the summer. They had all gone to different parts of the country. They come back for a special sitting um, on this case. And in fact, Frank Murphy had briefly enlisted in the military for the summer, and he comes in in his army uniform, and Felix Frankfurter looks at him and he says, wait a minute, you can't s sit on this case. You're in the military this summer. You have to recuse yourself. And, uh, and uh, Murphy reluctantly agrees. Now, Frankfurter doesn't mention that he's been engaged in all kinds of conversations with the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, about the composition of the commission and how it should be structured. But in any case, so the court holds a special two-day hearing in the summer. At the beginning of the justices' conference, one of the justices has heard from Biddle that FDR has said he wouldn't follow it if they rule against him. And he shares this with the other justices. And the Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone says, well, that would be most unfortunate. They have, the, they have two days of uh, oral argument. And then the next day, they issue a very brief one-line order, or one-paragraph order, with just a few sentences, um, where they just say the uh, defendant's objections are rejected, no reasoning, reasoning to follow, and the uh, opinion takes effect immediately, forthwith, in the language of the opinion. Um, and, so, and then the, the justices all leave. And within one week, the saboteurs are convicted, and uh, six of the eight are executed. And uh, FDR had committed, had commuted the death sentences of two of the saboteurs, the one who had confessed and one who also knew that the other one was going to confess, and they were given long sentences. But now the justices really had a problem because they had issued this unexplained decision. Um, they had all been convicted, six of them had been executed, and now the justices couldn't figure out their reasoning. And they had a terrible time. They were bitterly disagreeing about their reasoning. Um, and they were very conscious of the fact that if they came out with a very divided opinion, um, it, would, it would look terrible because they had already summarily agreed to six of them being executed. And finally, they sort of stumbled across the finish line. They did get to a, a unanimous um, opinion, but basically since the day that it was decided, um, it's been viewed 
very, very critically. And a number of the justices themselves who participated in it later said that it was uh, the wrong way for the court to do its business because they couldn't figure out the reasoning once they had decided and once the saboteurs had been executed. We have 20 minutes to go and all these cases are so interesting and complex. Uh, I have to pick my, pick my uh, poison here. Uh, I wanted to spend a little bit more time, you've already referred to them and how important they were and in the case of Korematsu, uh, shameful as you call it. Uh, so these came out of the February 19th, 1942 FDR Executive Order 9066 which was essentially the basis for Japanese internment. Why was the court uh, in two different places on Hirabayashi and Korematsu? They seem to be uh, threading the needle in very different ways here. Well, actually, with, um, with here, so let's back up a little bit to kind of set the, set the context. Um, you know, so Hirabayashi involved the curfew that again was targeted um, only against Japanese American citizens, not you know, not not German American citizens, not Italian American citizens, and that was the first of the cases um, to come to the court. And actually, with Hir with Hirabayashi and Korematsu, in both of those cases, the Supreme Court upheld the FDR administration's um, blatantly discriminatory regime. Now. There was a case, and this may be what we're referring to, the Endo case, oh, which was, was around the, at the same time. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. which was at the same time uh, as the Korematsu case, um, and so the, uh, here Bayashi was in uh, in June of 1943, and then and, and there the Supreme Court is saying, okay, we're only ruling on the curfew. We're not getting into the kind of internment and incarceration um, issues. Um, but then in the fall of 1944, the Supreme Court considers two, two cases, Korematsu and Endo. Um, and everybody's heard of Korematsu, and um, I'm, I'm very glad you brought it up because very few people have heard of the Endo decision. And with the Korematsu decision, which was basically challenging the decision to um, incarcerate in the first place, the Supreme Court in, uh, uh, in uh, one of the worst decisions ever issued by the Supreme Court, Justice Hugo Black said, uh, upheld the Roosevelt administration's uh, incarceration and internment and said it was justified by the war and said war imposes hardships. Um, with Endo, so there was a woman, Mitsue, Mitsue Endo, and with her, her claim was that she should not continue to be incarcerated because the government at that point conceded that she was not a security risk. Now, and just to back up, because uh, I just want to make sure everybody's aware of this, the internment and incarceration policy um, applied to all Japanese American citizens and lawful um, Japanese resident non-citizens. Um, there was no opportunity to show that they were loyal. There were no opportunity to show that they were not a risk. And so Korematsu was objecting to his initial incarceration. But with Endo, she was saying, you have now made a determination, an official determination, uh, that I do not pose a security risk. And so I cannot now 
um, continue to be incarcerated. Um, it's not authorized by that executive order and congressional legislation, and it would be unconstitutional. And at this point, in December 1944, what the justices said was that um, the executive order and the law that Congress passed didn't authorize continuing to keep somebody uh, incarcerated once they had been um, once they had been determined to not be a security risk. Um, but again, this was late in the war now, December 1944. There were a lot of people in the Roosevelt administration who had been pushing for closing it. And even there, the justices took care um, so that it wouldn't uh, really confront the Roosevelt administration. It's fairly well established that justices on the court leaked to the Roosevelt administration that they were gonna come out with this ruling and so the day before the Supreme Court's ruling, the Roosevelt administration said it was now, as a matter of policy, ending the policy uh, of incarceration if somebody had established their loyalty. So that when the Supreme Court opinion came out, it was actually just ratifying something that the Roosevelt administration had done. But Mitsue Endo, who is the only woman um, who was litigating in this, and she's the only one who prevailed, and she's actually a true American hero, and I don't think enough people sort of realize they offered to let her go to end the case, and she refused. They offered to let her go as long as she wouldn't go back to her home in California, um, and she refused because she wanted to go back to Sacramento, and she refused because as a matter of principle, she felt it was very important to kind of vindicate her rights and the rights of others in the camps. Future Justice Thurgood Marshall, during this time period as counsel for the NAACP, argued two cases before the court. Uh, one was Adams versus U.S., which was about a rape case on a U.S. Army base. The other was Texas's segregated primary. What were the outcomes of those, and what did they do to the cause of civil rights for African Americans? Well, he won both of them. Um, the first one he won on a technical ground, which really um, uh, highlights the brilliance of Thurgood Marshall as, as a lawyer. But the second one was really the significant one. Is Smith versus Allwright, um, and it struck down the all-white primary in Texas and throughout the South, which was a very, very big deal. It had enormous consequences. One historian says there's a trajectory that leads um, to Brown versus Board of Education 10 years later, Thurgood Marshall's you know, famous historic victory in Brown. Very important on voting rights as a door opening um, case. But it's also very reflective of wh what was happening in the country and civil rights. There was a great deal of civil rights activity and ferment during World War II. The African American community had adopted what it called the double V campaign, victory over fascism abroad and racism at home. And there were uh, very extensive civil rights demonstrations. Um, and also the dislocations of the war economy um, allowed African-American workers to be in industries um, and in positions that they hadn't been in before, which sometimes provoked a very ugly white uh, backlash. Uh, but this was all part of the context of Smith versus Allwright. And the way Thurgood Marshall presented the case and the way the justices viewed it was very much in the context where we were fighting a regime based on racial supremacy. And here, uh, Texas and the other southern states were defending a primary system 
based on racial supremacy. And so Thurgood Marshall's victory, that was his first major victory in a case that he argued in the Supreme Court in his you know, very illustrious career um, as a Supreme Court uh, advocate and, and, and historically an extremely important case. Yeah, on that argument about the contrast between what was happening in Europe with the Nazis and uh, these cases at home, just thinking about Korematsu, did the Axis powers take advantage from a public relations aspect about the Korematsu decision? Did they say this is how Americans treat people who are different in their country? Um, that really wasn't um, as much of a factor um, there. Um, you know, where that came up more is that there was a very important uh, case striking down a compulsory sterilization law from Oklahoma. And, um, and it's actually a very important case on reproductive rights because the first case, Skinner versus Oklahoma, where the Supreme Court finds a fundamental liberty interest in the decision about whether to have a child or not. But what had happened is that previously, sterilization laws in this country had been upheld um, as part of the eugenics movement of kind of improving our, uh, the, the, the race. And actually, Hitler and the Nazis, when they came in and through the 1930s, they did very aggressively point to that um, U.S. practice of sterilization laws as justification for their own brutal sterilization regime. They invoked that American example repeatedly. And so with the compulsory sterilization decision striking it down, it was really um, at that point a reaction of showing a difference between this country and the Nazis, and that played a very important part in the decision. Just for clarification on the Texas primary case, since your story is one of uh, justices who were very enamored of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, this was an 8-1 decision in that case. Did the Roosevelt administration take a position in the uh, Texas primary? It was a Democratic primary. After yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. They um, de decided not to participate um, and again, you know, Francis Biddle and others in the Justice Department who um, saw themselves as great, um, you know, civil libertarians and civil rights champions said, well, we've done enough in other cases. This would sort of, um, you know, stir things up too much and make the southern states too angry. So they didn't file an amicus brief. But what they did do um, is there were a couple of the uh, senior Justice Department officials who felt very strongly about the case, and so they allowed them to write an article saying that the court should um, reach this result of striking down the all-white primary. But they very deliberately did not uh, formally participate in the case. And that was a source of real controversy. I mean, the civil rights leaders went to their ally Eleanor Roosevelt about it, and she actually um, raised it with FDR, and he said to Biddle, what gives here? You know, I'm hearing a lot about this, and that's where Biddle then sort of formally explained this would be poking the southern states in the eye, and we thought that was unwise um, to do. So um, the Roosevelt administration actually did not formally participate in that case. I want to spend a couple minutes on an issue that is current for our time, and that's inflation control. And you have a chapter called The War at Home, which uh, describes the court's consideration of the legality of FDR's wage and price controls. And you make the point that this is a, a new issue for us again today with the current court on the, the extent of the administrative state. So what should we know about this case? Yeah, so um, 
in in during World War II, the uh, Supreme Court upheld broad government authority to deal with complex um, problems and novel crises, including unprecedented controls um, over the economy, rationing price controls and so on. It's a very, very deferential view of the federal government's um, power and authority because in light of the um, gravity of the problems and in light of the fact that the political branches are best suited to it. You know, it, this was an issue that probably united the post-1937 court more than any other because the pre-1937 court had been striking down all these government actions. And so um, they get very broad deference. Now, on the current Supreme Court, we see the court adopting all sorts of new doctrines to really limit the uh, government's ability to respond to novel uh, uh, crises and complex problems. Uh, there's the new major questions doctrine, there's interest in reviving some of these pre-1937 doctrines and really limiting the government on issues ranging from the response to COVID to climate change and saying that the government um, isn't authorized. So it's a very, very dramatic um, contrast. That um, deferential approach to the government, um, to the government's authority, really lasted for probably three quarters of a century. Um, in my view, it served us well to have that kind of deference to the political branches. But you now see a very different approach emerging on the current Supreme Court. Five minutes left in our program. I want to spend a moment on the chapter that is about FDR flirtation with William O. Do uh, Douglas, the justice, as his running mate. and. Um, I, I felt like I learned more about FDR in that <laughs> chapter, actually, than William O. Douglas and the way he played people and, and their egos throughout the process. Yes, no, that's a very, very um, uh, interesting uh, set of events there. So it's 1944, FDR is gonna be running for his fourth um, term. He has decided to dump his vice president in his third term, Henry Wallace, because he was viewed as um, as a very sort of erratic and eccentric and the, the party pros very much disliked him. Um, but FDR, uh, as on all things, wanted to be very deft about it. And uh, liberals and labor uh, liked Wallace. And so FDR initially favored uh, William O. Douglas, a sitting justice, as his, uh, as his running mate. He was sort of infatuated with Douglas. I mean, um, he said that he told great stories. He was part of FDR's poker circle. He loved his background in the Pacific Northwest. He even talked about how his hair blew in the wind. Um, but, uh, and there's a lot of twists and turns, but um, FDR said he was gonna leave it up to the convention and the convention week itself, uh, FDR releases a letter saying that he would be glad to run with either Truman or Douglas as his running mate. And there's a dispute about whether whose name he wanted to go first um, uh, on it because it was viewed as significant that the letter that came out listed Truman's name first. Those were the only two names that he mentioned, Truman and Douglas. And up until the last day of the convention, um, Douglas was a leading candidate. And Douglas 
had people at the Democratic Convention in Chicago working very hard with the party bosses and with the you know party faithful at the convention to get the nomination for Douglas. Douglas himself wasn't uh, wasn't there, uh, but he came very very close to getting that vice presidential nomination. Um, and there's a lot that suggests that FDR really wanted him to do it, but. FDR as the sort of wily politician was keeping all of the kind of um, constituencies in the party in play and up for grabs and ultimately um, they, uh, they, they settled on Truman. To me though, I have to say, it's an illustration of an excessive closeness between a justice and the president who appointed him. Uh, Douglas did not take himself out of the running. There were people there acting on his behalf. And you know we have had times in our history when justices actually were um, active in various kinds of political campaigns. Um, but there was a chief justice in the 19th century who when he was being suggested uh, to be the Republican nominee for president, emphatically ruled himself out and said that justices should stay far from the political whirlpool. And I think that's the proper approach. And Douglas never did that. He never either ruled himself out to stay away from the political whirlpool or resigned from the court um, to run for vice president. So in the couple of minutes we have left, sum this all up for me and what the lessons are of FDR's war court. The subtitle suggests at uh, the, the world they made that this court had great impact on the country. So how should we think about it? Well, it's, um, it's really a tale of two courts. It's the best of courts and the worst of courts. And both um, have very important lessons for us today. On the best of courts, in my opinion, um, in sort of self-conscious reaction to the totalitarians that we were fighting, to the Nazis and the fascists, the court um, recognized and protected and expanded constitutional rights in areas like reproductive rights, voting rights, protecting despised religious minorities, giving government um, broad authority to deal with novel problems and complex crises. Um, those all really controlled the legal world um, for, for decades. Now, a lot of those are under fire today, um, but in my mind, those were very, very positive contributions, and it really established the groundwork. So that's the world they made. Now, the worst, of course, we've talked about um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the stain of the anti-Japanese cases, which is a very, very deep stain, um, as well as the Nazi saboteur case and the kind of rush to justice in those cases. And those cases, I think, have important lessons for us. I mean, and one is the danger of excessive deference to the government's claims of national security, because they were wildly inflated in both cases. But the second, which I think is especially important today, is the danger and the catastrophe that can result when justices are unwilling to stand up to the president who appointed them or to their political patrons. And that's an especially important lesson today at a time when more than at any time in our history, the positions of the justices correlate with the political party of the president who appointed them. So it's a very, very, uh, that worst of courts side of the war court's legacy is a very important reminder and warning to us today about the need for judicial independence from the political sphere. 
Cliff Sloan's book is called The Court at War, FDR, His Justices, and the World They Made. Thanks so much for the hour. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Remember, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll never miss an episode. And I'd really like to hear from you about our interviews. You can email me at podcasts, that's podcast with an S, at c-span.org. Your feedback is welcome.